When we began our series in the book of Nehemiah, I told you that this was a book that was about more than just rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And as we've gone over the last six chapters so far, what we've seen is that this is a book that has taught us how to pray. There are lessons in leadership we've learned, and we've seen how to handle conflict. As we turn in our Bible today to Nehemiah chapter 7, we come to a pivot point in the book. Because at this point, the, the rebuilding of the walls is over. The walls are up, the gates have been hung, but there's still a construction project going on because God is at work inside the walls of the city, renewing the hearts and minds of the people. And so as we look at Nehemiah chapter 7 today and the chapters to come in the weeks ahead, what I want us to do is to look at our own lives. And I want you to ask yourself, is there an area of renewal, an area of work that God needs to do within your own life? I invite you to turn with me now and look at Nehemiah chapter 7 as we begin reading verses 1 and 2. It says, Now it came about that when the wall was rebuilt, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, and the singers, and the Levites were appointed, that I put Hananiah, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem. For he was a faithful man, and feared God more than many. So as chapter 7 begins, we see that Nehemiah is taking off his hard hat as the construction manager, and now he's turning to managing the city. And to do this, he picks two men to help in overseeing the work. As he chooses these men, what we're going to find is the character is at the top of the list. All the qualifications they have uh, are secondary to whether or not these men have character. We're told that Hananiah is a faithful man who feared God more than many. And as you look at Hananiah, you may say, well, he got the job because he was Nehemiah's brother. But you'll remember back in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 2, we saw that it was Hananiah who came to Susa. Back when Nehemiah was still the cupbearer to the king, living in luxury in the palace, it was his brother who shows up. And he said, Nehemiah, you need to know about Jerusalem. You need to know about the ruins. You need to know about the reproach of God's name and his people. Hananiah had the heart for God and his people And so these are the two men who are chosen. As you think about these guys who were picked, I want to ask you to think for a moment that what would it be like if Nehemiah were to actually walk in here to Wayside this morning? If he walked in and he started walking down the aisles and he was looking at you, which one of us as men or women would, would Nehemiah say, you have the heart, you have the character, You're the type of person that I want in my administration. Would you be a person that Nehemiah would pick out this morning to serve in this capacity? When it comes to who you are, we talked last week about being the same in the shadows as we are in the spotlight. And this morning on Sunday, you can say, well, I'm advertising myself as one way, as a man or a woman, a boy or a girl who follows Jesus. But what about the rest of the week? When you walk out of this church, when you're out there at school or where you work or the neighborhood where you live, what would people say about you? Many of you have seen the TV show Survivor, and it's been on for quite some time. And one of the episodes that was on about a decade ago featured a a woman by the name of Lil. And maybe you remember Lil. Uh, She was the one who wore the Boy Scout uniform for the show and Of course, that had people say, why are you wearing a Boy Scout uniform? And she would tell all the other contestants, well, I'm a scoutmaster. And as such, the scout law says the scout is trustworthy, and I'm trustworthy. I can be believed. I tell the truth. I'm I'm a person of integrity. 
And as the season went on, she got voted off, and then this was one of those where they brought people back on, and she got back in the tribe, and before it was all over, they came to the final episode, and it was between Lil and one other contestant, another woman. And when the jury of her peers, the other contestants who had been eliminated at that point in the game, were questioning these two women to decide which one of them they were going to give the million-dollar prize to, uh, they peppered Lil with questions that said, how did you deceive us? Who did you manipulate? Did you play the game with integrity or did you tell lies? And as she squirmed in her seat, at first she tried to justify everything she had done, saying, well, you know, it was a game and that's what you do in the game and on and on. But one of the contestants said to her, your moral code doesn't match the way you play the game. You're a liar. And as they gave the other woman the million-dollar prize, Lil said, I wish I had never worn this uniform. You know, when it comes to us being believers, how many of us are a little bit like Lil? We wear the uniform. We advertise that we're a Christian. And yet the way that we live our life doesn't match our moral code or what we say. How many of us out there in the world are different than what we say we are as a follower of Jesus? You know, Nehemiah wanted those who were faithful, those who feared God, those who followed him, because he knew there would be times of temptation that would come. There would be opportunities to compromise. And he said when those times came, would this person follow God? Would they turn to God instead of the temptation? And so these people are chosen because they're trustworthy. Hananiah was the commander of the fortress. This is the citadel that oversaw the temple area and protected the northern wall. And so that tells us that he's a, he's a proven leader. He's a man of courage, a military man. But most importantly, we're told about his character, that he was a man who feared God. And his trustworthiness was important because even though the walls were in place, the walls could be defeated if you had people guarding the gates or watching the walls who could not be trusted. A great example of that is the, the Great Wall of China. The Great Wall of China was built to protect them from the ancient hordes. And, and as they built this wall, it's 30 feet high, 18 feet thick, and more than 1,500 miles long. And the goal was to build an impenetrable defense that was too high to climb over, too thick to break through, and too long to go around. And after the wall was complete, in the first 100 years after its construction, China was successfully invaded three times in 100 years. It wasn't the wall's fault. Nobody broke through it. Nobody went over it. Nobody went around it. In all three instances, what they did is they bribed one of the gatekeepers. And the armies marched into China through one of the open gates. Nehemiah knew the same thing could happen to the city of Jerusalem. They had this great wall in place. The gates were up. And so he chooses two leaders who have integrity over everything else. Now, you'll remember as we looked earlier in this series, there were actually ten gates to the city. So two guys can't cover ten gates, much less two and a half miles of walls that had been built. And so what he does is he goes back and looks for additional people he can trust. In verse 1, we, we see that he goes to the temple. And it says he gets the guys who watch the gates of God's house. These are the worship leaders. These are the gatekeepers, the priestly assistants. I asked a moment ago if somebody were to walk in here, if Nehemiah came in looking for those he could trust, who would he pick? 
Would he come up here on the platform and, and start with the worship team? Would he look for those who have uh, uh, badges that say they're an usher or somebody who's serving out in a, a place, one of the greeters? Who would Nehemiah pick? And if he picked you, would you be somebody who would, would be trustworthy and have integrity? There was a little boy who was walking along the beach one day, and he, he saw a woman underneath one of these beach umbrellas. And this little boy walks up to the woman, and he says, are you a Christian? And the lady's a little bit surprised by the question. She's sitting there, you know, on the beach enjoying the, the day, and she says, well, yes, I'm a Christian. And he said, do you read your Bible every day? And she said, Yes. And he said, do you pray every day? And she said, most days. And he said, would you hold my quarter while I go swimming? <laughs> you know, there are people out there who are looking for those who can be trusted. Not just in big things, but little things. Friends at school or you work with who need a confidant. People who can trust you to, to fulfill something with with integrity and not cheat them, clients who want companies or, or service people who are going to uh, be honest in the work they do? Are you a man or a woman who can be trusted in both the big and the little things? If people are looking for somebody of integrity, are you one of them? Nehemiah starts by putting these godly guards in place, and then we see that he takes some additional steps to safeguard the city in verse 3 because it says, Then I said to them, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are standing guard, let them shut and bolt the doors. Also appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each at his post and each in front of his own house. Now the gates of a city would be closed at night, but normally when day was breaking, they would open the city gates so people could go out or commerce could come in. But what Nehemiah says is we're going to wait until the sun is hot, until it's high in the sky. This would prevent the enemy from hiding in the shadows or, or attacking the city while many were still asleep because the city was sparsely populated at the time. So he said, we want everybody up and moving. We want everybody ready if an attack came. So they kept the gates closed. He did the same thing in terms of the evening. He said, we're going to lock the gates early. We're going to bolt them while uh, the guards are still in their places. And then what he does is he, he goes to the next level and appoints a civilian guard. He, and he, again, he assigns people right where they live. We saw earlier in this uh, book that he had people build a wall right by their house. This saved travel time, and it also ensured a great job would be done because you didn't want the wall to be breached right where your property was. And so he says, you're going to guard the wall right where your neighborhood is, where your loved ones are living and your friends are. So he knew people would be uh, diligent. And as Nehemiah is setting up these safeguards, verses 4 through 6 tell us there was a lot of wall to cover and there weren't as many people as he would like. It says, now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few and the houses were not built. Then my God put into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be enrolled by genealogies. Then I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up first, which I found the following record. These are the people of the province who came up from captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his city. Again, we see Nehemiah is not just wanting warm bodies on the wall. He's again looking to see are these people who know God, 
Are these the people of God who are following him, who, who are invested in the mission and the work of God? And so he goes to the genealogy, the, the records. Remember, there had been several returns from the captivity and the exile. So he goes to look at the list of those. And, and the list he's looking at is similar to what we find in Ezra chapter 2, another Old Testament book where Ezra returned to rebuild the temple with the first wave of exiles. And rather than reading through this, this list of all the names, let me just summarize the groups that we find. In verse 7, he starts by naming the leaders. Verses 8 through 25 are, are the people by their families. Verses 26 through 38 tell us the people by their cities. And then in verses 39 through 42 are a list of the religious leaders, including the priest. Verse 43 has the Levites, and verses 44 through 45 are the singers and the gatekeepers. These are all the ones serving in the temple. 46 through 56 tells us about the temple servants, and in verses 57 through 60, it's the descendants of Solomon's servants. In verses 61 through 65, it's the returnees who have, mic- who have a mixed ancestry. These are people that can't prove their purity as Jews, and we're going to see this is an issue in a moment with some of the, the religious leaders. In verses 69 through 69, um, 66 through 69, we're given the totals of, of the people and the animals that could be ridden. These are valuable beasts of burden. And then when we come to verses 70 through 72, Nehemiah turns from telling us who the people are to what they gave to the work of God as the temple was rebuilt. Verse 70 says, And some from among their their heads of fathers' households gave to the work. Now when it says the governor, this isn't Nehemiah the governor. He's pointing back to one of his predecessors. He says the governor, this was a guy by the name of Tishretha, At the time, he gave to the treasury 1,000 gold drachmas, 50 basins, and 530 priestly garments. Now, a drachma was a coin that weighed about three-tenths of an ounce. So as you add up what he gave here, this is 19 pounds of of gold. And these garments and the utensils were, were precious. Verses 71 through 72 tell us of others who added to this amount. It says, And some of the heads of the father's households gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 gold drachmas and 2,200 silver mina. And and that which the the rest of the people gave was 20,000 gold drachma, 2,000 silver minas, and 67 priestly garments. So this is another 750 pounds of gold, as well as 2.6 tons of silver in addition to the clothing that was given. This is an enormous amount of money and resources. The people are generous. Remember, they've been in exile. They're returning. They, they're invested in the work of God that's, that's taking place, and they give to support it. And just as I was reading through this, I thought of Wayside. I thought of the generosity of God's people here at Wayside. Year after year, Y'all give sacrificially and generously. We meet or exceed our budget every year with the giving that allows us to reach into the community, that allows us to reach around the world in our partnerships, sharing the good news of the gospel. And as we look at the people here in Nehemiah's day, they're giving these gifts sacrificially. Now, in verse 43, we see that there are some who are struggling to make God the priority that he should have been. Because verse 43 tells us there were only 74 Levites, and then it mentions uh, another 148 singers and then some additional gatekeepers in the temple. 
So there's 50,000 people who have returned, and you, you literally have a handful, just a few hundred, of the priests and the Levites and the temple servants who are there. Now, Levites are the professional ministers. They served alongside the priests in the temple. Remember, Aaron was the high priest, and you had the Aaronic priesthood, and then you had the Levitical tribe, and these were the people who were set aside to serve in the temple. And as as the captivity had happened, some commentators will tell you, well, the, the Levites had been decimated in captivity, and so there weren't any of them left. But that's not all of the problem. Yes, their numbers had diminished, But the problem was a deeper one of their heart because as you look at the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 8, remember Ezra was the guy who brought the first wave back to rebuild the temple. And when it came time to leave captivity and come to Jerusalem in the first wave, Ezra 8, 15 through 17 tells us this. Now I assembled the people at the river that runs to Ahava where we camped for three days. And when I observed the people and the priest, I did not find any Levites. He's looking, he's taking a census. Who's here? Who's going back? And he says, there's not a single Levite. He says, I did not find any of the Levites there. So I sent for Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jareb, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and, and Meshulam, leading men, and for Joarib and, and Elnathan teachers. And I sent them to Ido the leading men of the, of the place of Kasepha, and I told him what to say to Ido and his brothers and the temple servants at that place. That is, bring the ministers to us for the house of our God. You know, as the people are gathering, as the caravan is about to go back, you would think the Levites would be at the front of the line. These are the, this is the tribe that has been told, your place of ministry, your priority, your privilege is to serve in the house of God. And as word comes that we're going back to rebuild the temple, we're going to do this, they should have been at the front of the line, but as he looks out, Ezra says, there's not a single Levite here. They'd been in captivity for generations, and without having the temple to serve in, they had built homes, they had found new careers. And so when the big day finally comes, they're, they're looking at what they have. You know, hey, we've got a house, we've got a business, we're established. I don't want to give all this up to go back and serve in the temple. You know, we talked last time about whenever we say yes to something, we're saying no to other opportunities, And we talked about how sometimes you say no to good things so there's room left for better and best. And these Levites should have said no to the good things they had for the best to go back and serve in God's house. But they said, we're too comfortable. We like what we have. This is too much to give up to go back and serve God. As you thought this past week about your own life, I asked you to go back and look at your life and see if there are things you need to say no to, to leave room to say yes to God in other ways. Did you find that you're too comfortable? Are you like the Levites where you're saying, you know, I'm just going to have to give up too much. I like what I have. I like my life. Don't, don't make this, this big ask on me in this area. Well, these were the Levites. And so Nehemiah, uh, Ezra, sent back and said, look, go tell these guys, remind them of their place and their priority. And, and as, they, as they do that, as they come, uh, they, they, 
there was a group that came back, but a small group. There were 74 Levites, and there's an additional 148 of the Levitical group, and then there were some gatekeepers beyond that. But again, this is still just a, a tiny little group. Now, as I asked about getting your priorities right and saying no to things to say yes to others, again, I've already highlighted how many of you are saying yes to God with your your resources. You're saying, I'm going to give to God's work. And it's not just about your money. You know, we don't want you to put your money in the plate. We want you to put your life in the offering plate. We want you to say to God, here am I, God, use me. Whether it's here at Wayside, whether it's out where you work, where you go to school, where you serve on the base, God doesn't just want your money. The Bible tells you where your treasure is, there your heart will be. So your money follows your heart. And again, I'm thankful because this is a church where many people's hearts are given over to serving God and his people. We see that every week in the children's ministry. We have a ministry here called Wayside Kids and out at our Stone Oak campus. We have 100 kids out at Stone Oak and we have 650 children registered in our children's ministry here at the 410 campus. To serve those 750 children takes literally hundreds of volunteers. Every Sunday, there is a small army of volunteers who serve faithfully with your time. Some rock babies in the nursery. Others shepherd and teach the the toddlers, the preschoolers, and the elementary kids. You're serving faithfully. And you may say, well, you know, I, I... I just don't feel qualified to serve. Let me tell you, we have a fantastic children's staff who who prepares curriculum, who prepares the resources. All you need is a willing heart to show up and to to serve these children. And a bonus is you get snack time, you know? (laughs) We don't hand out, you know, snack here in in church, but you get that when you serve in the children's ministry. And, And there are others who are serving faithfully in the student ministry, we, we have hundreds of middle school and high school kids that, again, are being served by a small army of faithful volunteers. We have those who, who serve on the Sunday morning. We have those who serve in the midweek activities where the, the students are broken into small groups by age and grade. And there, there are those, I love to see some of these faithful servants who have started with a, a group. I have two daughters and a son who have gone through the program. And I've seen some who have followed my kids all the way from their first year in junior high school all the way to being a graduating senior. And these are adults who have poured into these kids for six, seven years, investing their life and impacting the lives of kids. And some of you say, well, Roger, I can't make that long term of a commitment. Well, again, there's, there's opportunity sometimes for a one-weekend of, of service. You heard advertised earlier the upcoming Echo Weekend. This is our in-town student retreat that takes place every year. And as Ronald told you this morning, the, the letter X or the Roman numeral 10 is because this is the 10th year we're doing this particular weekend. This is an intensive, they start Friday night through Sunday morning. And it's a, a fun-filled weekend of deep teaching. The, the X also stands for the Greek letter Chi, which is the name of Christ. And this isn't just a party with a purpose. This is where deep discipleship takes place. Students invite their unsaved friends from school. And we have unsaved students who attend Wayside. And through this, there are many who come to faith in Jesus. They begin a relationship with Jesus Christ. And those who already know the Lord, this is a time where they grow deep in their abiding walk with Jesus. 
And, and you, you can serve in various ways. You don't have to have students who are in the ministry. Every year I love to see empty nesters who come in and say, I want to serve. We have people who open up their homes that don't have kids in their homes anymore. There are 14 people who have already committed their houses. Again, they're, they're divided by age and grade level and gender. And so some homes will have 12, some homes have almost 20 kids in it. And you say, I don't have a home big enough for 20 kids. Well, you don't necessarily have to. Again, it's just floor space uh, for these kids to roll out, and there are chaperones that accompany them. Now, if you're thinking that's too big of an ask, here's the good news. Uh, I've been told we have all the host homes that we need. Now, there are over 140 kids already registered, and we're anticipating more than 200 who will be a part of this. So there could be a need for another home as the numbers grow. So if you're thinking about it, you know, and you want to put your name down on a waiting list, great. Another way that you can serve is by being a driver. Uh, they go to the home Friday night, and they're driven out to our Stone Oak campus where they're going to have the activities. And then, uh, So they need drivers. Right now, 23 have already committed to driving these kids around, but we need more. And so if you uh, are able to do that and are interested, we'd love to talk to you. And then we need people to provide meals. Now, you're not feeding all 200 kids and then the volunteers on top. These host homes, what happens is you're feeding the, the group that is in it. And so you'll prepare a breakfast on Saturday morning and a lunch on Saturday. That's the commitment. And again, we have a number of people already served, but I think they need eight additional people to serve meals. So if you're thinking in terms of how can you step in, maybe you want to dip your toe in the water, see what it's like to serve in, in an area like student ministry, here's a great opportunity uh, to do it. And what I hear from those who... Uh, our empty nesters is they love the energy, they love the excitement, they love the multi-generational aspect where they're getting to talk to these kids. And, and, and what I hear every year is, you know, we feel better about the future. We feel better about the future of our church and our country as we're seeing there are some great quality uh, young people that are coming up. So if you're interested in doing something like this, we'd love to hear from you. Just contact the church office and let them know. But as I said, many of you are already serving in, in faithful ways. And it's something we're all called to do. First Peter 2.9 tells us that as believers, we are a part of the royal priesthood. In Nehemiah's day, there were designated priests, designated Levites. But as New Testament Christians, we've all been brought into the priesthood of believers. Now, there were those in Nehemiah's day who wanted to serve in a priestly role, but they were having trouble proving their lineage, as we see in verses 63 through 65. There it says, And of the priests, the sons of Hobiah, the son of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillah, who took a wife of the daughter of Barzillah the Gileite, and was named after them, these searched among their ancestral registration, but it could not be located. Therefore they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. And the governor said to them that they should not eat from the most holy things until a priest arose with the Urim and the Thummim. Now, the Urim and the Thummim were the lots that a, a priest was given by God that he would wear on the ephod that he could throw to decide yes or no things. So if you had somebody like me that said, well, I'm a priest, but I couldn't prove my ancestry, I couldn't prove I was of this particular tribe, if the lots were available, they could ask God, is Roger of, of this tribe or not? And it would be a yes or a no answer. Now, we don't have those things today. Don't use a magic eight ball to try to figure out God's will for your life. Uh, but this was something that could be determined in that day. 
Um, now, in terms of saying they were unclean, it's because, remember, the priest would eat of the portions of the sacrifice, the things dedicated over to God. And they would also be in places in the temple, as we saw last week, where Nehemiah was being told to go into some forbidden areas uh, by this person trying to trap him. And so God said, we don't want you to defile the temple and we don't want you to bring judgment on yourself or others. So they had to prove their, their ancestry. Uh, before my wife and I were married, uh, I went to my father and my future father-in-law about 34, 33 years ago. I went to him and I said, uh, Mr. Morgan, I'd, I'd, you know, I called him and said, I'd like to come over and talk to you. And my wife and I had been dating for some time before this. So I show up at the, the Morgan's house and uh, I sit down with uh, Mr. Morgan in his living room. And I said, I'd like permission to, to marry your daughter, Kim. And uh, I was expecting all the answers, you know, that fathers want to know. How are you going to support my daughter? What are your intentions? All these things. And, and the only question he asked me, he said, are you ready to be a part of the Kelsey Kindred? And I'm like, Kelsey Kindred? I'm not sure. What, what is that? And he said, well, the Kelsey Kindred is part of the Mayflower Compact. His, his father, Kim's grandfather, was a lawyer in New York, and he loved genealogy, so he traced their family line all the way back, and he was able to prove ancestry to Priscilla Mullins. If you've ever studied John Alden and Priscilla Mullins, who came over on the Mayflower, Kim's great-great-grandmother times four-something, uh, was a lady named Lydia Lay, and she was the daughter of Priscilla Mullins, uh, from this this marriage, and so he said, uh, "We are part of the Kelsey kindred, and as you marry my daughter, your children, if you have any, will be part of the Kelsey kindred." And I was sorry, I wasn't overly impressed. I know I should have been, uh, but I, of course, nodded my head. Oh, that would be great, sir. Uh, can and I said, "Well, can I marry your daughter?" And he he said, "Well, tell me about your lineage now." My lineage, you've probably heard my name Poupard and wondered where in the world does that name come from? Well, it's French-Canadian, and people go, how do you pronounce it? Just think of Winnie the Pooh and Part, Poupart. Um, so I said, well, Mr. Morgan, my dad is from Quebec. Uh, he's Canadian, and my mom is from a little town in France, Inton Falls. She immigrated to Canada during the Nazi occupation. She was there for the war. And, you know, as everybody loved America and what they did, she wanted to come to America. And they said, well, you need to go through Canada. It'll be faster. So she immigrated to Canada. There she met and married my dad. And so my parents are French-Canadian. They ultimately immigrated to the U.S. and became naturalized citizens. I was born in Dallas, so I'm a first-generation American. I'm a French-Canadian frog uh, from Texas, you know. So as I'm trying to explain all this to Mr. Morgan, in the end, I just essentially said, I know I'm French-Canadian, but I'm a mutt. I don't, I don't know my family line any more than, you know, one generation back beyond my parents. And so he was, it was his turn to be under-impressed about me. Uh, but in the end, I tell you that story because if you had to prove your genealogy, if you had to prove your ancestry, how many of you here can do it? How many of you would be able to go back to the records and say, here is who I am? Now, as believers in Jesus, here's the good news. That doesn't matter. God doesn't look at us and say, tell me about your family line. 
Tell me how many generations back people have been believers in Jesus. Now, if you come from a family that has parents who are Christians and grandparents who were Christians and great-grandparents who are Christians, what a wonderful legacy. What a blessing to come from a family that has that lineage and that can help you uh, know and understand God's word in a, in, a, in a way where you were raised in it. But there are no second-generation Christians. Each and every one of us has to come to faith personally. If you're somebody whose parents were believers, it doesn't get your name in the book of life. God will not welcome you into heaven one day because your mom or dad were Christians. You will be welcomed into heaven based upon whether or not you personally have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. It doesn't matter what your, your lineage is. If you come from a broken home, if you come from a messed up background, if you've made mistakes in your own life, God has not written you off. God's grace is available to you, just as it was to me. Romans 5.8 tells us, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That means when we were at our worst, when we were far from God in rebellion, actively sinning, fighting against God, God didn't write us off. Instead, he left his throne in heaven and he came to earth to ultimately go to a cross to die, to pay the penalty of death for us. The Bible tells us in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. It tells us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God offers us the gift of new life, not because of who we are or what we've done. Ephesians 2.8.9 tells us, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one should boast. God offers us the gift of new life if we will come to his son. I want you to picture a courtroom for a moment. And you're seated in the courtroom, and there's a judge up on the bench. Now, this judge is known by everybody to be uh, a fair but strict judge. If the law has been broken, he will say you're guilty, and he will give the maximum penalty that is defined by the law. And everybody knows this. But then one day as you're sitting, sitting there watching the proceedings, the door opens and the next defendant brought in is the judge's biological son. And as the son is brought before the bench, everybody's going, oh, well, let's see if dad is going to be, uh, you know, the same with his son as he is with everybody else. And the judge looks at the defendant and he says, uh, why are you here? And he goes, hi, dad, it's me. Slams the gavel down and says, why are you here? And he said, well, I was arrested. And he said, I see the charges are this. He said, did you do this? And he said, I'm guilty. And so the judge slams the gavel down and says, guilty. Uh, the penalty is $1 million. Now the son at that point goes, dad, you can't do that. You know I don't have a million dollars. If you sentence me to a million dollars, I will be in jail the rest of my life serving out that time. I will never get out of jail. I'll die there. And the father says, you've committed a crime. The penalty has to be paid. Now, the judge stands up at this point, and he takes his robe off. He lays it on the bench. He walks down, and he comes alongside, and he puts his arm around his boy. And he reaches into his pocket, and he writes a check for $1 million. And he tears it out, and he holds it out. 
And that son at this point has to make a decision. Will he take the check? Will he accept it? And walk over to the window and pay the penalty? Or will he reject his father's offer? And if he rejects the payment, then he will have to pay it himself. And he'll die in jail. That's what God did for us. We come before him. The Bible is very clear there is a judgment day coming where it will actually be Jesus Christ on the throne. John 5.22 says that all judgment has been given to the Son. And as you read Revelation 20, you see something called the great white throne judgment where the unsaved of the world will stand before Jesus on the bench and he will judge them. He'll look to see, did you receive my payment in your place? If your name is not in the book of life, he's going to open the other books to see what are the things you did with your life? What are the deeds you've done and whether or not you can be, uh, we think, well, I, I did all this good stuff. God will let me into heaven. But as God looks as a holy and just God, he says there is a penalty that has to be paid. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. That's the legal penalty for when we sin. And the word sin means to miss the mark. It means think of your life. Have you ever lied, stolen, cheated, done anything wrong? Because if you have, and we all have, remember Romans 3.10, there's none righteous, no, not one. And as sinners, we owe a penalty. And what God says is, I came, I left my throne in heaven, I came to earth, I took off my robe, and I went to the cross to die for you. I paid the penalty of death for you. It's why as Jesus was dying on the cross, he said in John 19.30, it is finished. Literally, the word means paid in full. It's the Greek word teteleste, paid in full. What was paid in full? The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord, that verse goes on to say. And so what Jesus did was he paid the penalty for us. He wrote the check, good for eternal life. If I wrote you a check for a million dollars today, don't get too happy because it would bounce. Okay? But when Jesus wrote a check that said good for eternal life, It didn't bounce. He proved he was who he said he was because as he was buried in the tomb, he rose from the dead three days later showing I am indeed God. I conquered sin and death. And so when he writes the check, when he says paid in full, it is finished, he means it. But what he says is this gift is available and in order for you to be saved, you have to take the check. Romans 10.9 says if, that's if, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And so as you think about your life this morning, I have a question that I want to close with. Have you taken the check? Have you ever accepted God's payment in your place? Have you ever said to God, I know I'm a sinner, and God, I know I deserve the penalty of death. God, I can't get there on my own. I'm not good enough. Remember Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works. And so if you're here this morning and you've never taken God's gift to you, accepted the check, the blood of his son Jesus to wash away your sins, I invite you to do so today. We're going to close with a prayer. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. But what you do have to do is acknowledge in your heart and mind that Jesus is who he said he was, the Son of God. And you have to accept his gift in your place. As Romans 10.9 says, 
If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, you will be saved. If you'd like to do that, I invite you now to close your eyes, bow your head, and just pray this prayer with me. It's your way of telling God that you're accepting his gift. You're taking the check. And if that's your desire, then I invite you just to pray this prayer in the privacy of your heart and mind. Dear God, I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes in my life. And because of that, I know I owe a penalty. A penalty of death. I thank you, God, that you loved me so much that you left your throne in heaven to come to earth, to walk among us, and to live a perfect life. You never sinned, Jesus, but you willingly went to the cross to die to pay for my sin. And today I accept your sacrifice in my place. I accept your gift, God. I believe, Jesus, you're who you said you were and are, the Son of God, who conquered sin and death, who paid for my sins and rose from the dead. I thank you, God, for the gift of life. I thank you for making me a son or a daughter of yours. I pray these things in the name of my precious Savior, Jesus Christ.